Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Imagine, if you will, an entire palace room created from amber, that beautiful honey-colored substance which is created from fossilized pine resin, and which, when heated and then soaked in a mixture of honey, linseed, and resin, and molded into flat leaves, can be pieced together by craftsmen to create intricately carved panels which are placed upon gold-leaf boards which formed the walls of a room. The result a bright, shining gold masterpiece of a palace room fit for a king and a queen. And that's how an ambitious young sculptor and architect named Andreas Schluter, who had fallen out of favor with Queen Sophie Charlotte, the wife of Prussian King Frederick I, imagined it, when he came upon a huge store of amber in the cellars of the royal palace. Schluter's craftsmen labored for years to complete the intricately carved panels and boards of amber, but the project stalled after the deaths of Queen Sophie Charlotte and Frederick I until around 1712, when the panels were installed at the Berlin City Palace. In 1716, Frederick William I, in a grand effort to create a Russo-Prussian alliance against Sweden, gave the panels to the visiting Russian Tsar Peter the Great, who had showed a great admiration for the Amber Room upon visiting. Peter well understood the value of this rare gift, and returned the favor with the gift of fifty-five giants, his regiment of men all over six feet tall, which was a rarity in those days, as men only averaged about five foot six inches in height then, and the panels were carefully removed, carefully wrapped and packaged, and brought to the new city of St. Petersburg. The panels remained in storage until 1743, when Peter the Great's daughter, Empress Elizabeth, had the amber room installed first at the Third Winter Palace, and then moved to the Catherine Palace at Sarsky Silo, or the Tsar's Village, just outside St. Petersburg, where the Russian imperial family spent their summers. Italian designer Bartolomeo Francesco Restrelli redesigned the room to fit into its new, larger space using additional amber shipped from Berlin. The room, when finished, would occupy 590 square feet and contain over six tons of amber. It took nearly ten years to complete it, but when it was finished, it became the envy of the world, and it was dubbed at the time the eighth natural wonder of the world. The amber panels were backed with gold leaf 
and historians estimate that, at the time, the room was worth $142 million in today's dollars. Over time, the Amber Room was used as a private meditation chamber for Tsarina Elizabeth, a gathering room for Catherine the Great, and a trophy space for Amber Connoisseur Alexander II. Andreas Schluter would have been very proud. The room survived the Russian Revolution and the fall of the monarchy. But as Hitler's Germany marched toward St. Petersburg in 1945, head curator Anatoly Kuchimov was desperate. He had been ordered to pack up what he could and head east toward the interior in safety. But he could not find a way to take down the panels without breaking them. They had become brittle with age. So he decided to cover them up with wallpaper in hopes that the Germans would pass over the greatest treasure in Russia. On June 22, 1941, Adolf Hitler had initiated Operation Barbarossa, which launched three million German soldiers into the Soviet Union. The invasion led to the looting of tens of thousands of our treasures. The wallpaper ruse didn't fool the German soldiers who tore down the Amber Room within 36 hours, packed it up in 27 crates, and shipped it to Konigsberg, Germany, present-day Kaliningrad, on October 14th, of 1941. The Amber Room was reinstalled in Konigsberg's Castle Museum on the Baltic coast. The museum's director, Alfred Rode, was an Amber aficionado and studied the room's panel history while it was on display for the next two years. In late 1943, with the end of the war in sight, Rode was advised to dismantle the Amber Room and crate it away. In August of the following year, RAF bombing raids destroyed the city of Konigsberg and turned the Castle Museum into ruins. And with that, the trail of the Amber Room was lost. Some believe that the Amber Room was destroyed in the bombing raids, but many believe that the Germans had removed it and sent it to an undisclosed location. Witnesses have turned up through the years to support the legend that it had been moved, but exactly what the Germans did with it is still a subject of controversy and one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of the 20th century. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, as we grapple with yet another one of the world's most confounding unsolved mysteries, the question of, what happened to the Amber Room? It seems hard to believe that crates of several tons of amber could go missing, and many historians have tried to solve the mystery. The most basic theory is that the crates were destroyed by the bombings of 1944, and what they didn't destroy, the Russians did in their effort to rid the German troops that occupied that city. There is a paper trail in 1945. Orders given by Hitler on the 21st and 24th of January 1945 ordered the movement of looted possessions from Konigsberg. So something survived the firebombing of 1944, obviously. This allowed Albert Speer, Reich Master of Armaments, to transfer cultural goods of priority. But no paperwork exists to verify if, how, or when the Amber Room was shipped out of Konigsberg. Others believe that the Amber Room is still in Konigsberg, now called Kaliningrad, while some eyewitnesses have said it was loaded onto a ship called the William Gustlav, which left the Baltic seaport of Gidnia, Poland, in January of 1945 but was torpedoed and sunk by Russian submarines, leaving the ship, a converted ocean liner, and its precious cargo somewhere at the bottom of the Baltic Sea. 
The story of the William Gustloff might have remained a lost footnote here, but for the fact that I searched it for that witness account, and although I failed to find that, I did turn up an incredible but sad story. As the Red Army advanced on East Prussia, the ship's Admiral Karl Donitz began preparations for Operation Hannibal, the mass evacuation of German troops and civilians from the area. Beginning on January 21, 1945, an estimated two million Germans were brought to the West in an operation that far exceeded the British evacuation at Dunkirk. The Gustloff was ordered to bring the soldiers of the 2nd Submarine Training Division to Western Germany. On January 25th, the ship started taking other refugees on board, and by the afternoon of January 29th, the count had reached 7,956 when registration was stopped. Witnesses estimated that perhaps another 2,000 refugees boarded after that point, making the total number of persons on board close to 10,000 people. Shortly after noon on January 30, the Gustloff left the harbor. Although it was originally planned that the Gustloff would be but one element in a larger convoy, mechanical problems forced two ships to turn back, and the Gustloff was accompanied by only the torpedo boat Low. Because he was worried about the Gustloff's engines failing after years of sitting idle, Captain Friedrich Peterson decided that the ship would travel no faster than 12 knots, which is 14 miles or 22 kilometers per hour. In doing so, he ignored the advice of Wilhelm Zahn, commander of the 2nd Submarine Training Division, who argued that increasing speed to 15 knots, or 17 miles per hour, would reduce the likelihood of an attack, as Soviet submarines would not be able to keep up. Peterson also rejected the recommendation of First Officer Louis Rees, who had advised a course that hugged the coastline. Ultimately, the Gustloff headed for a deep-water route that was known to be clear of mines. At about 6 p.m., a message was brought to the captain warning that a minesweeper convoy was headed their way, prompting him to activate the ship's navigation lights to prevent a collision. Navigation lights made it easier for subs to spot. The origin of that message is unknown. None of the radio operators on the Gustloff or the Lowe claimed to have received it, and it is unclear whether it was a misunderstanding or possibly sabotage. The Gustloff did not beat any minesweepers on its way, but it was spotted by the Soviet submarine S-13 at about 7 p.m. The Soviet commander, Captain Alexander Marinesco, maneuvered his submarine between the Gustloff and the coast, as an attack from that direction would be least expected. At 9.16 p.m., the Gustloff was hit by three torpedoes and proceeded to sink over the course of one hour. The ship was carrying lifeboats and rafts for 5,000 people, but many of the life-saving appliances were frozen to the deck, and their effective use was further impeded by the fact that one of the torpedoes had hit the crew quarters, killing those best trained to deal with the situation. Nine vessels took on survivors throughout the night, but the frigid waters of the Baltic Sea in January claimed many of those who had been on the ship. Of the estimated 10,000 people on board the Gustloff, only 1,239 could be registered as survivors, giving this sinking the highest death toll in maritime history. Despite the high number of civilian deaths, allegations that sinking the Gustloff constituted a war crime are largely unfounded because of the presence of weapons and nearly 1,000 military personnel on board. 
Aside from history books and documentaries, the story of the Gustloff has been the subject of several feature films and fictional works, including the novella I'm Krebsgang, in 2002, in English, Crab Walk, by Gunter Grass. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. There have been numerous reports of pieces of the Amber Room turning up, as well as mysteries surrounding it and the people who have come in contact with it, and we'll get to those later on in our story. On May 31, 1945, just three weeks after the surrender of Germany and six weeks after the fall of Konigsberg, Professor Alexander Brusov of the State Historical Museum in Moscow arrived in Konigsberg to find out what had happened to the Amber Room. The city was in ruins, and the castle had been largely burned. Going down to the cellars of the castle, Brusov found that an intense fire had swept through this part of the castle, and amidst the ashes were the carbonized remains of three of the Florentine mosaics belonging to the Amber Room. But nothing else. Brusov was determined to find the remainder of the priceless artifact. He knew from the interrogation of the Germans who had occupied the castle that the room had been packed up with the intention of shipping it to a safer spot. The former curator even led him to a bunker on the other side of town that he had known was used as a storage bunker. But there was no sign of the Amber Room. Brusov's report reached back to Kuchimov, the Catherine Palace curator who had looked after the room for so many years, and Kuchimov refused to believe that the Amber Room had been destroyed. Using his KGB connections, Kuchimov literally destroyed Brusov's career with a series of scathing press attacks and launched his own investigation. He said he found evidence that the Nazis had scouted locations in the Prussian countryside as well as in more distant parts of Germany for a suitable location for the Amber Room. He followed the trail as far as Berlin, but all leads petered out. He returned to Konigsberg and began a search that lasted for 40 years, tunneling and excavating throughout Konigsberg, but with no luck. Meanwhile, Germany entered the search, inspired by articles that the Soviet press was constantly releasing, inferring that the Amber Room had survived the war and that the search was close to finding it. As legend has it, in 1997, a group of German art detectives got a tip that someone was trying to sell a piece of the Amber Room. Actually, it was a mosaic, which was the fourth of that set of four stones which had been found beneath the Konigsberg Castle. They raided the office of the seller's lawyer and found one of the room's mosaic panels in Bremen, but the seller was the son of a deceased soldier and said he had no idea as to the panel's origin. They dug deeper, no doubt interrogating family members, and found that the stone was stolen by the son's father, who had been a member of the German Wehrmacht and had stolen the stone in Leningrad in 1941. Again, according to legend, the son had kept the stone and his father's secret until the late 1990s. The father had also stolen a chest of drawers from the Amber Room, and the son had that in his possession as well. Needless to say, the treasures were taken by the Germans, who probably exacted a huge finder's fee from the Russians, who received the chest and the panel and used them in the construction of the new Amber Room, which began in 1997. And we'll discuss that further on in the story. The reason we say that the story of the German soldier stealing two pieces of the Amber Room in Leningrad is possibly a legend, well, there are actually a couple of reasons. One, it was in German possession, and it's doubtful it was ever in Leningrad. 
but even more convincing is a lengthy 2004 investigation by British investigative journalist Catherine Scott Clark and Adrian Levy, which concluded that the Amber Room was very likely destroyed when Konigsberg was bombed by the Soviets in 1941, 42, and 43, and later by the British in 1944 during the bombing of Konigsberg, and by the Soviets' initial burning of the castle, followed by the Soviets' shelling of all the outer walls. Which of the bombings destroyed the castle? In 1941, acting mainly in retaliation for the German bombing of Moscow, Joseph Stalin personally ordered the Soviet Air Force to bomb Konigsberg. Eleven P-8 bombers attacked the city on September 1, 1941. The Soviets did not lose a single bomber in the raid. The Soviet Air Force bombed the city again on 26th of July, 1942, 27th of August, 1942, and the 15th of July of 1943. On the night of the 28th of April, 1943, a bomber dropped an 11,000-pounder on the city's historic area, the largest bomb in the Soviet inventory. Number 5 Group carried out the first RAF attack on Konigsberg on the night of August 26, 1944, using 174 Avro Lancasters. The target, which was at the extreme range for the planes, demanded a round trip of 1,900 miles from their bases in England. Planes from RAF Skellingthorpe could not return to the base and diverted to RAF Tain in northern Scotland after ten and a half hours of flying time. Despite losing only four aircraft, the first attack was not particularly successful because most bombs fell on the eastern side of Konigsberg, missing the city center, where the castle was located. The next RAF raid occurred three days later on the 29th of August. This time, Number 5 Group dropped 480 tons of high-explosive and incendiaries on the center of the city. RAF Bomber Command estimated that 20% of industry and 41% of all housing in Konigsberg was destroyed. Out of a force of 189 Lancasters, German night fighters shot down 15 RAF bombers. The historic city center suffered severe damage, and the districts of Allstadt, Lobdenich, and Naipov were nearly destroyed. The city's 14th century cathedral was reduced to a shell. Extensive damage was also done to Konigsberg Castle. All churches in the old city, the university, and the old shipping quarter. In 1945, the prolonged Battle of Konigsberg inflicted further damage. When the Soviets occupied the city in April 1945, more than 90% of the city was already destroyed. Under Soviet occupation, the surviving, much reduced German population was forcibly expelled from the city. It was then rebuilt as the Russian city of Kaliningrad. Scott Clark and Levy both concluded that the Soviets promoted narratives about the Germans stealing the Amber Room in order to deflect blame upon their own military for destroying it, and blaming the Germans was an effective Cold War propaganda tool. But I don't necessarily agree with Scott Clark and Levy. If Hitler ordered the removal of stolen artifacts from Konigsberg in January of 1941, he did so because he knew Konigsberg would be bombed, and he wanted those art treasures, of which the Amber Room was one. He was storing millions of dollars' worth of stolen paintings and artifacts in caves, salt mines, and underground bunkers all over Germany. When Hitler sent orders, they were followed to the T. It's much more likely that the Amber Room was loaded onto a ship or sent out by rail. 
One of the more extreme theories is that Stalin actually had a second amber room, and the Germans had stolen a fake. Another bizarre aspect to the amber room story is the amber room curse. Many people connected to the room have met untimely ends. Take Rode and his wife, for example, who died of typhus while the KGB was investigating the room. Or General Gusev, a Russian intelligence officer who died in a car crash after he talked to a journalist about the Amber Room. Or, most disturbing of all, this story. In West Germany, strawberry farmer and amateur historian George Stein had taken up the hunt for the Amber Room after previously helping to repatriate other art treasures to Russia. A letter purporting to be from a former SS officer led him to believe that the room had been shipped out of Konigsberg to an old mining complex in Lower Saxony. Over the next 25 years, the fruitless search would end up destroying Stein's family. His wife committed suicide and his children disowned him, and then he lost his sanity. George Stein was found murdered in a Bavarian forest in 1987. The official Soviet party line is that he supposedly disemboweled himself with a scalpel after hearing that the Amber Room had been shipped off to America after the war. Another ingenious invention of the KGB, possibly, to discourage Amber Room hunters. When it comes to making up wild stories and dossiers, no one can do it as well as the KGB. In 1968, despite a storm of protest that stretched across the globe, Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev ordered the destruction of Konigsberg Castle, thus making any research of the last known location of the Amber Room impossible, and removing an historic landmark that represented a significant piece of Russian history. Other legends as to whereabouts of the Amber Room place it in a bunker in Mamerki in northeastern Poland. In truth, the Amber Room could have been packaged up and sent by rail to any number of German hideaways, as was discovered with all the art, bullion, and treasure the Nazis squirreled away, much of it without any surviving documentation. The George Clooney-directed movie The Monuments Men documented the Allied effort to save as much art as they could, with only limited time to save it from destruction. Just recently, in 2017, a sunken German cargo ship was discovered. The story behind it, it was cornered by a British cruiser and scuttled before it could be searched. It was discovered off the coast of Iceland, and it made a few headlines, but still the story remains fairly quiet. It seems that that German cargo ship was named the SS Minden, and was rumored to be carrying 40 million in gold bars sent from banks in South America to support the Nazi war machine. Which, of course, begs the question, why would South American banks want to fund Nazi Germany? Answer, why do banks do anything? To make a profit, of course. How could they profit by financing the Third Reich? For a share of the spoils, of course. Who was behind it all? A pretty powerful group of financiers, who were willing to bet it all on the Nazis, as well as offer them a safe harbor should the whole thing go down the tubes in the end. Time for a deep dive to get the answers to the above questions. It will drive me nuts if we don't. First to the U.S. National Archives. Trade with the Third Reich. Bibliography. Written by Alders, Gerard, and Cess Weebs. The Art of Cloaking Ownership. The Secret Collaboration and Protection of the German War Industry by the neutrals, the case of Sweden, and in that the authors deal with the activities of Swedish businessmen 
representing neutral banks and corporations who cooperated with their counterparts in Nazi Germany, specifically with a focus on the Wallenberg family and their Stockholm and Skilde Bank. Cloaking or hiding the true Nazi business ownership from allies is noted, as is the way neutral banks, including Enskilde, helped to dispose of assets looted from occupied territory and Jews. Then there was the work done by Aarons, Mark, and John Loftus. Titled Unholy Trinity, the Vatican, the Nazis, and the Swiss Banks. Note, this book has caused considerable controversy since it first appeared in 1991 as Ratlines, based on British code-breaking of Swiss bank messages. It tells how Western money and stolen Nazi money was laundered through Switzerland and then out through the Vatican Bank, the one bank that could not be audited, to South America, and back to Germany. The paradoxical role of the Dulles brothers, as members of the U.S. intelligence community with connections to German business leaders and the Vatican, is detailed. The authors, reporting on the Vatican's Nazi smuggling network at the end of the war that sent fugitives mostly to Argentina, where they were welcomed by the Perones, conclude that the smuggling venture was primarily for the financial interests of non-German investors, including the Vatican. So we see who was doing the heavy lifting of finances and looted treasure between Switzerland and Argentina. As for South America, Argentina, especially Buenos Aires, was a huge supporter of Nazi Germany. Argentina remained neutral through World War II, providing Germany with chemicals needed to kill Jews in gas chambers in Germany and Poland, along with rubber, oil, and the gold bullion needed to finance their deadly war machine. The banks and in people involved all listed. The heads of the Deutsche Bank and the Algemin Elektrizitata, a Jesselshaft figure prominently on the board of directors of CHADE, which controls electric light and power for the city and province of Buenos Aires. Before his trip to Argentina, Ventosa M. Calvet was seen several times in Bern and Montreux, Switzerland, in the company of Hitler's financial advisor, Dr. Halmar Schacht. That is one example of how the Argentine government has managed to speed up the development of war industries. In that way, Fritz Mandel, former Austrian munitions manufacturer, organized his armament factories in Argentina. My source, United States Congressional Record, Volume 142, Number 55, Thursday, April 25, 1996, Senate. From the Congressional Record Online to the Government Publishing Office. Titled, Alleged Swiss Collaboration with the Nazis and the Smuggling of German Looted Property to Argentina. Sorry I couldn't resist it, folks. All a part of history that the guilty would like to forget. It doesn't seem to have slowed down the Deutsche Bank or Siemens, however. Now, back to our story. The history of the new Amber Room, at least, is known for sure. The reconstruction began in 1979 at Sars and was completed 25 years and $11 million later. Dedicated by Russian President Vladimir Putin and then-German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, the new room marked the 300-year anniversary of St. Petersburg in a unifying ceremony that echoed the peaceful sentiment behind the original. The room, finished in 2003, remains on display to the public at the Sarskoy Silo State Museum Reserve outside of Petersburg. Using original drawings and old black-and-white photographs, every attempt was made to duplicate the original Amber Room. 
This included the 350 shades of amber in the original panels and fixtures that adorned the room. One of the biggest challenges was the lack of skilled workers, since amber carving was considered nearly a lost art form. In Germany, in Kleinmachnow, near Berlin, a miniature amber room was created, fabricated after the original. The German miniature collector Ulla Klingbeil had this copy made of original East German amber. The Nazis are counted as among the biggest art thieves in history. They confiscated from their own citizens, plundered galleries in occupied countries, and ended up looting over 20% of Europe's artwork. Leading dealers were enlisted in a Nazi organization known as the Eisenstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg, which was established to loot museum collections and ship the contents back to Germany. Some pieces remain missing, though most have been recovered thanks to organizations like the Commission for Looted Art in Europe. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. It gets really interesting here with the ten most prized pieces of art that were looted by the Germans, one of those being the Amber Room. Some of those pieces you might be interested in. The first is called the Ghent Altarpiece. That was described as the most stolen and coveted piece of art in history. The early 15th century Flemish polyptic panel, painted by Hubert and Jean Venick, was one of the first created using oils rather than tempura. Napoleon took it to France, and the Germans stole it during World War I. In 1934, panels were stolen that remained lost. Hitler wanted the altarpiece for the Fuhrer Museum project in Linz, and Goering wanted it for his Caringhall estate. Goering got his hands on it first, before Hitler had the altarpiece installed at Neuschwanstein in Bavaria, then stored in the Altasee salt mines in the Austrian Alps, from where it was recovered by the Monuments Men. Then there's Raphael's Portrait of a Young Man. The portrait of a young man is believed to have been a self-portrait by Raphael, finished in 1514. It was brought to Krakow by Prince Adam Jerzy Zartoryski in 1798 from Italy and placed in the Zartoryski Museum. Hidden at the start of the German invasion with the rest of the museum's works, the Gestapo quickly discovered the stash and confiscated the Zartoryski collection. The portrait ended up hanging in the office of Hans Frank, the Governor General of Poland, after being sent between Berlin, ready for display in the Fuhrer Museum, and Frank's office in Krakow repeatedly. In 1945, it was in Frank's hands and is believed to have been with him as he fled the Soviets. But to this day, the portrait remains missing. Then there was The Astronomer, by Vermeer. One of the finest works of the great Dutch master Vermeer, the astronomer has been hanging peacefully in the Louvre since 1983. Before then it was owned by the French branch of the Rothschild family and was among the 19 crates of artworks seized by the ERR from the Rothschilds following the invasion of France. Sent to the Jeux de Palme in Paris, used by the Nazis as a storage house before works were sent on to Goering or Hitler. Vermeer's The Astronomer ended up being stored in the Altasee salt mine before it was restored to the Rothschilds at the end of the war. In total, the Allies recovered over 6,600 paintings from the salt mines. Then there was Michelangelo's Madonna of Bruges. The Madonna of Bruges was the only work of Michelangelo to leave Italy during Michelangelo's lifetime. The sculpture of the Virgin and the Infant Christ was made between 1501 and 1504 and brought to Bruges by leading merchants from the city. 
In September of 1944, as the German forces were in retreat from Belgium and the Netherlands, the sculpture was smuggled back to Germany in a Red Cross truck. It was found in the Altasee in 1945 and restored to its place in the Church of Our Lady in Bruges by the Monuments Men. And yes, we'll be doing an episode on the Monuments Men one of these days soon. Then there was Gustav Klimt's portrait of Adele Bloch-Bauer. Klimt painted Adele Bloch-Bauer, the wife of the Austrian industrialist Ferdinand Bloch-Bauer, twice. His first portrait of 1907 was perhaps the finest example of Klimt's golden period, a classic of the Viennese Jugendschil style. In 1938, with the Anschluss between Germany and Austria, Ferdinand fled leaving behind his art collection. It was looted by the Nazis and the work sold off. The portrait of Adele Blosch-Bauer was bought by the Austrian State Gallery and recently was the subject of the 2015 film The Woman in Gold, following the attempts of the niece of Blosch-Bauer to regain the painting. Then there was El Greco, Portrait of a Gentleman. This one was in the news earlier this year. The Commission for Looted Art in Europe recovered the El Greco and restored it to its owners, just one of the 3,500 works handed back since the establishment of the commission in 1999. The portrait was part of the collection of the Jewish industrialist Julius Priester, seized by the Gestapo in 1944. After a 70-year search to find the collection, the El Greco was handed back to the Priester family in 2015. It had turned up in New York in 1952 and went through the hands of several dealers before surfacing in New York again in 2014. Then there was Van Gogh's Portrait on the Road to Terrasone. The details are a bit sketchy on Van Gogh's 1988 Portrait on the Road to Terrasone, a self-portrait of the artist on the road to the provincial town with a strange shadow walking beside him. In the 1950s, Francis Bacon took inspiration from that painting for a series of works, having only ever seen reproductions of the original. We know Van Gogh's work was confiscated by the Nazis and sent to be housed in Magdeburg, where it's believed to have been destroyed by an Allied bombing raid. But nothing is documented about the fate of the picture. Then there was Max Lieberman's Two Writers on the Beach. The German-Jewish painter Max Lieberman painted two versions of Two Writers on the Beach, one of the finest of German Impressionist works. One version went to a collection in New York. The other went to the Jewish industrialist David Friedman, from whom it was stolen following the Kristallnacht pogroms of 1938. It passed to the art dealer Hildebrand Gerlet, who worked on the collection for the Fuhrer Museum. The Allies allowed him to keep the painting after the war. In 2012, his son Cornelius Gerlet was discovered to have over 1,200 works in his Munich apartment, including pictures by Chagall, Dix, Matisse, and the Lieberman. It fetched 1.86 million pounds at Sotheby's in 2015. Then there was Leonardo da Vinci's Lady with an Ermine. The Nazis had their eyes on three pictures in particular when they took Poland. One of them was the Raphael mentioned above. The second was Lady with an Ermine, painted in 1489, depicting Cecilia Gallerani, the mistress of Ludovico Sforza, the Duke of Milan. Brought back from Italy by Adam Zartoryski in 1798, it was stolen in 1939 and was sent to Berlin then back to Hans Frank in Krakow. Unlike the Raphael, though, it was found in Frank's Bavaria home where he had fled to escape the Soviets closing in on Krakow. The Allies restored it to the Zardoryski Museum in Krakow. 
There are others listed, but I think you get the idea. And there are still many treasures of art which have never been recovered. It's assumed they were either destroyed or being held by private collectors, and they're not talking about it. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We appreciate your sharing our show with others, and we also appreciate your reviews. Please do take a moment to enjoy our other shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Greatest Love Stories, 1001 Radio Days, and 1001 Stories for the Road. And you can always catch our interviews podcast, which is 1001 History's Greatest Storytellers. Everyone take care, stay safe, and we'll be back next Sunday night with a brand new episode. See you then.